the Order of the Solar Temple, or the OST, was an international esoteric secret society that was founded in Geneva, Switzerland in 1984. The OST claimed to be in direct bloodline with the Knights Templar and preached ideas like reincarnation, the hollow earth, eugenics, and the impending apocalypse. The OST boasted over a thousand members spreading across Switzerland, France, and Canada at its largest, including many prominent members of industry and government. The membership trended upper middle class to wealthy, and most of them carried out seemingly normal lives. That is, until the fires of 1994 shined a new light upon the solar temple. Mass murder-suicide is not unique to the OST, but they certainly put their own spin on it. The ideas and beliefs of the OST led to the murders or suicide of 74 people in three countries over a two and a half year span between 1994 and 1997. Suicide, poisoning, shooting, stabbing, and arson took lives across half the globe for a singular purpose. The transit of the OST to a new planet orbiting Sirius. To really understand what the French fuck I'm talking about and why 74 people had to perish, we have to look back at the two men who started and ran the OST into their fiery graves. The older of the two, author of the teachings and man behind the scenes, was Joseph DeMombro. As a lifelong grifter and a former cult leader twice over, he was the perfect man for the job. He was born on August 19, 1924, and grew up in France with his mom. He claimed to have special abilities for reading people from a very young age. It is believed that he was a jeweler or a clockmaker in his young adulthood, but there are really very few records from this time. But in 1956, Joseph de Mombro joined his first secret society, the ancient and mystical order of the Rosy Cross, or Amork. Amork reveals that there is coded hidden information about the world and about life itself in a philosophy-religion mashup. More importantly, it awards this knowledge through a tiered paid membership system. DeMombro liked it alright, but after a few years of membership, he could see through the tiered system for the cash scheme it was. That is to say, he enjoyed the teachings, but he'd rather be the teacher. He figured if there was money to be made selling bullshit, that he could get his piece of it. DeMombro left him work in 1969 after 13 years to get his new story straight, and in 1973 he founded the Center for the Preparation of the New Age. This new group of DeMombros would teach self-enlightenment cosmic BS about preparing for a universal change like the Amor Cat, but with an Egyptian twist or something like that. And one more thing, DeMombro was actually a reincarnation of Osiris, or Moses, or both, depending on the day or who he was talking to. The people who were attracted to his group, well, they just so happened to also be reincarnations of famous historical figures. Crazy as it all was, he began gaining lifelong followers, and his congregation grew over the next five years. He ruled his congregation with an iron fist, 
controlling his followers completely. DeMombro told his people that he was the only one that could pair anyone for marriage, and he also told them if and when they could have kids. He sold it using ideas of selective breeding. He was the breed master, the only one who really knew who had produced the best offspring for the OST. One of the people who had fallen under DeMambro's control was famous Swiss orchestra composer Mikhail Tabotnik. But DeMambro saw his group's growth begin to stagnate. And he knew why. You see, he loved the religious fanfiction side of the gig, but he didn't really have much panache. He wasn't much of a people person, a showman. So to really crank the cult up a notch, he decided to rebrand. The Egypt shit was beginning to feel a bit stale, and it was time for a change. So in 1978, along with Tabotnik, Joseph DeMambro moved to Geneva, Switzerland and changed the name of the group from the Center for the Preparation of the New Age to the Foundation of the Golden Way and added the Knights Templar to the lore of the group. Like the last group, the goal was to prepare people for the coming cosmic shift. And it was while he was on the road teaching this 13th century fairy tale and enlightenment hoo-ha that Joseph DeMambro would meet Luke Jurek, the man who would become the face of the Solar Temple. Luke Jure was a handsome doctor and 20 years younger than DeMambro. He grew up in Belgium and during his late teens he joined a group called the Walloon Communist Youth where he gained an appreciation for the communal life. After spending some time as a paratrooper in the Belgian army, he attended the University of Brussels studying medicine. After graduating, he spent some time in the field before becoming disillusioned with the industry and leaving. He began teaching homeopathic medicine and acupuncture techniques. He actually found enough success in this area to open up his own homeopathic and new age teaching clinic in 1976. Luke Jure did not have a lot in common with Joseph DeMambro, but it would be their shared interest in the Knights Templar and New Age philosophy that would facilitate their meeting and seal the fate for 74 people. It was the early 80s when the two met at one of Joseph DeMambro's lectures. He was there speaking on behalf of the foundation of the Golden Way. Luke Jure was already a Knights Templar nerd, so mashing his New Agey ideas into it intrigued him. By this time, Jure was becoming known for his own New Age teachings through his homeopathy center. DeMambro saw Jure as someone who could promote the group to the public, and he was also intrigued. Jure was such a charismatic and enthusiastic guy that he almost became the leader of a different Templar group by merely suggesting it when the standing leader died. When that was blocked by the family of the former leader, DeMambro saw his chance, and he offered to go in 50-50 on a brand new operation with Jure. DeMambro would bring his followers from the foundation of the Golden Way, and Jure could bring his New Age homeopathy clientele and anyone who wanted to follow him from that other group that he almost led, which turned out to be about half the membership. The two agreed, and the Order of the Solar Temple was born in 1984 in Geneva, Switzerland. Luc Jure traveled all over France, Switzerland, and Canada giving lectures and interviews to spread the message of the Solar Temple. These external public lecture tour events were the Amanta Club of the cult. 
everything spoken about at these lectures given by Jeray were relatively palatable and rather vanilla. It could be summed up as a crude mix of New Age philosophy, esoteric Christianity, and Templar lore. The most fringe concept revealed to the public at this stage was reincarnation. This level was the hook, the free version of the app. If people liked what they were hearing enough to pay, they could join the next level of the membership, or the Arcadia Club, but it would cost them. In today's money, it would be about $1,000 a month, immediately eliminating the riffraff. This is where the real ideas of Joseph DeMambro begin to take center stage. At this level, the members learn that Jeray is actually a reincarnation of St. Bernard of Clairvoy, a 12th century Catholic abbot who heavily influenced the Crusades. And if that weren't enough, they also learned magnificent things about their own past lives. Dramatic and theatric rituals featuring robes, capes, and swords are introduced to the members, leaving them with many more questions and a desire to ascend further. The final tier was the Golden Circle. The most devoted, and of course the most wealthy, would join the chivalric organization of the Solar Temple, or the esoteric Golden Inner Circle. These members were hand-selected, and there was no application process. In this final stage, DeMambro would reveal that the Knights Templar were alive and well, living in a subterranean land known as Agartha, deep below Zurich, Switzerland. This meant that DeMambro's teachings weren't just his opinion, but messages directly from the Council of the 33 Ascended Templar Masters in Agartha. You heard me right. The Knights Templar are alive and well just hanging out in the hollow earth, making decisions for the upper echelon of the OST. Membership at this level were also introduced to a new set of rituals that were performed in a secret basement. We do not know much about these rituals because few survivors experienced them, and most of those who did refused to talk about it. What we do know is that once a month they would enter the chamber and each take their assigned seats before participating in a sacramental drinking of LSD-laced wine. An elaborate system of lights and lasers and fog would set the mood for the trip. DeMombro and Jeray, fully clad in Templar gear, robes, swords, and capes, would approach and perform miracles before their very eyes. Sometimes they cured cancer of members right there in the room that didn't even know they had cancer. Other times, they would transmit thoughts and blessings through their very touch. But easily the most impressive was when they would materialize one of the four sacred objects from thin air. The Holy Grail, the original menorah, the Ark of the Covenant, or the Sword Excalibur. Once the basement ritual was over, the members would ascend into the clubhouse. When they left, the lower level members, who were also having their own meetings, saw just how excited those piling out of the trip dungeon were, and they needed to find out for themselves what was going on down there. Exactly the inspiration they needed to start donating most of their income to the OST. The financial obligations of the Golden Circle stage reached 90% of the members' income. See, this is the whole scheme. They would lure new members in with innocuous ideas and grand promises of self-improvement and whatnot. 
updates that'll increase the fees and expand the lore while dragging out the experience to ensure that the member's sunk cost is so high that they are forced to go along with the information that they've paid so much for and worked so hard to find out. And maybe if there was some truth in any of this, it'd be worth it. But we know that Demombro and Jure were just con artists. The mythology and the teachings were all bullshit, and the miracles were all illusions. Demombro discovered early on that he had a special effects guy within his ranks, and he conspired with him to set up the sacred object's illusion, just a trick of lights and mirrors. But it was a good racket. The membership got a mind-blowing trip, and they left with a sense of wonder and exclusivity that few cults could ever provide. The secret group had quietly swollen to over a thousand members by the late 80s, and smaller clubhouses sprung up all over Quebec and Switzerland. The exclusive nature of the group came with a level of secrecy that left many of the members' friends and family completely in the dark about their involvement. And things were going great. But then the group's message began to change. It was nothing new for the OST to speak of humanity's destructive ways on the earth and a coming new age, but there were now talks of an impending apocalypse, and it was to come in the mid-90s. Demombro and Jure told their members that there was a vast space in Quebec that would be spared from the apocalypse, and it was meant for the Templar members to inherit the earth. The sizable migration of Swiss followers inspired by this prediction proved to Demambro and Jure that their membership could be fully exploited. But rumors surrounding this sudden pilgrimage attracted the first unwanted attention to the OST. Perhaps sensing that their luck was running short, their con became more depraved. The members at the top level were all hand-selected by the two men in charge, so it was no wonder that two-thirds of them were young women. In 1989, Jure began to claim his spiritual energy was being spread too thin as the group grew, but he could recharge it by having sex with a member of his choice before rituals. Female nudity became a regular occurrence in the rituals as well. Joseph DeMambro began marrying, divorcing, and breeding members of the OST at will, taking a page directly from his own Golden Way days. But the OST actually took it a step further, granting certain women the privilege of carrying a cosmic child, which is really just Demambro or Dre's kids, obviously. At first, Demambro and Dre practiced what they preached. In the late 80s, though, they started to phone in the work while taking more and more from the members spinning into a classic cult self-destruction mode. Demombro racked up 12 houses and had a six-figure bank account. He was humping any member he pleased, and still, it wasn't enough. So in his 60s, he took a 19-year-old mistress because he revealed her to be a reincarnated Egyptian queen. And he took her for the purpose of seating her with the new cosmic Christ child. This becomes more relevant later. Jure, on the other hand, began to talk less about inheriting the earth and more about a new concept that he called 
transit. In transit, a solar temple member would leave their physical body and travel on a death voyage by a path of fire to a planet orbiting the star Sirius. New Age teaching is largely metaphoric, so it was believed to be just that by most of the group, a metaphor for a consciousness shift. In 1990, the OST scam was exposed, though, ironically, by one of the adorned cosmic children. 18-year-old Elio Demambra stumbled into the wrong closet and found the temple's holy sacraments. He had only viewed them after miraculously appearing in rituals, and never so close. It was immediately obvious why, upon closer inspection, as they were all cheap plastic props. Elio had already been passed up for the new Jesus by his young baby sister, a baby born to a woman that Elio could have gone to high school with. So when he found out it was all a lie, he told everyone he could before quitting the OST forever, taking 15 other high-ranking members with him. This obviously wasn't good for the OST. DeMombro went straight into denial mode, while becoming more strict at the same time. But tightening their grip only prompted more members to slip right through their fingers. When that didn't work, he turned to blackmailing the high-ranking members that he feared would leave. It wasn't only the obligations and costs that got more serious for the members. The tone of the teachings did as well. When Jure cared to stop fucking members long enough to lead rituals, the speeches within increasingly incorporated death, the apocalypse, and the transit. And it was starting to scare some of the members, so they demoted his ass. In 1991, his official role of Canadian Grandmaster of the OST was taken up by Quebec's Minister of Finance, showing just how far-reaching the cult had become. Even without his official title, Jure still had loyalists, though. For some reason, he chose the most effeminate milk toast among his ranks and gave him the mission of acquiring arms. That man promptly approached an undercover cop, and after a quick sting followed by a raid of the temple, they arrested Jure and his lackey. But after a quick slap on the wrists, the Canadian government cut them loose and went back to not giving a shit about the group. Though this didn't raise too many red flags, Jure and DeMombro's paranoia shot through the temple roof. Income made for membership dues dropped from 500,000 francs in 1989 to about 89,000 in 1993. In 1994, 70-year-old Joseph de health started to fail. He was incontinent and had diabetes. Luke Jure wasn't doing much better, having his career completely squandered and now telling people that he too was dying of cancer. With nothing left to lose, the two started to prepare to put the transit into action. Tony Dutois was the special effects guy who set up the holographic light show for the temple. He, like many of the other members, was becoming disillusioned by the self-indulgent way the money was being spent at the absolute top. So he followed Starchild Elio in whistleblowing letting everybody know he had been behind the magic trickery before leaving the temple. DeMombro viewed it as a betrayal, but the real affront would come shortly after. During their time in the temple, 
due to Anna's wife had been forbidden from procreating for years. And when they left, they decided it was time for them to start a family of their own. They had a baby boy, and they named him Christopher Emmanuel Dutois. You're probably wondering why this is a big deal. Remember when I mentioned DeMambro knocking up some 19-year-old brainwashed bimbo to create a cosmic Christ? Well, they had a baby girl, who they named Emmanuel. Following the naming of their child, DeMambro made a decree that the name could no longer be used by any member's new children. It isn't clear if Tony Dutois thought his departure from the temple meant it no longer applied, or he made the choice intentionally to spit in the face of DeMambro. Either way, Joseph DeMambro took it as poorly as you'd expect a man who was fishing for an excuse to do something drastic. He reasoned that if his daughter Emmanuel was the cosmic Christ, Christopher Emmanuel Dutois was the Antichrist. And so it was decreed that the family must die. It also meant the Antichrist was here on Earth, breaking the seventh seal of the Book of Revelation and beckoning in the Apocalypse. Jure at this time had been effectively cancelled all over Europe, having all of his speaking events withdrawn by the vendors and even banned from many of them, and he was looking for his own retribution. He and DeMombro chose to have the Dutois family assassinated, followed by a meticulously planned, if not poorly executed, murder-suicide that would cover multiple continents. On September 30th, 1994, Tony Dutois, his wife Nikki, and their three-month-old Emmanuel were invited to one of Jure's chalets located 50 miles northwest of Montreal near a ski resort. They had been invited by the Jin Wads, a cosmic pairing of the OST who had maintained communication since before they'd been decreed the enemy. Little did the Dutois know, the Jin Wads were loyalists who were playing their part in the assassination plot. They were not at the chalet when the Dutois arrived. Instead, they were greeted to a golden circle hitman named Joel Edgar and Dominique Belleton, the young mother of DeMambro's Christ child. And when I say greeted, I mean immediately, viciously, and repeatedly stabbed. Edgar was there only for assistance because it would be the mother of the true Christ who would fell their enemies. Tony was stabbed a total of 50 times in the back. His wife, Nikki, took four to the throat and ten to the torso. Once Edgar and Bellatone had the three-month-old Emmanuel alone, they pulled out a wooden stake and stabbed the infant six times before wrapping him in a plastic bag to mark him as a traitor to the OST. At the same time this was going on, the goofy Golden Circle was having a premature Last Supper in Switzerland, fully aware of what was happening back in Canada. After killing the Dutois family, the murderous duo stole the Dutois' car and drove to Montreal to catch a flight back to Switzerland. There, they reunited with the Golden Circle and began preparing for October 4th, the day chosen for transit by Jure and DeMombro. Back in Canada, the Genwads would immediately step in to finish their role. They set the house on fire with incendiaries and killed themselves within the burning chalet the same night the Dutois were killed. When the fire crews arrived, they found all five charred bodies, 
but noted that just the Jinwats had metal pins melted into their corpses inscribed T.S. for Temple Solar. On October 3rd, with most of the preparations made, the entire Golden Circle had yet another last meal. This time it was lunch. The party was made up of the 15 or so true believers, those ready to lay down their lives in a ritual mass murder-suicide that would claim 48 lives the following day. Terry Eugenot was an ex-Golden Circle member who had been trying to reclaim some of the money he had given as donations over his 15-year membership, as he now felt the whole thing was a sham. On October 4th, the day of the transit, one of DeMambro's floozies called up old Terry and said they would have his money as long as he came to meet them at the OST compound in Sylvain. This compound was made up of three chalets, one belonging to DeMambro, one to Jurey, and the last to one of the wealthiest and most devoted members, a Swiss watch executive named Camille Pierre. Eugenot pulled up at 3 p.m. to see Florence, the girl who'd called him, and Joe DeMambro waiting outside. They claimed to be locked out and waiting on a locksmith. When the locksmith arrived, DeMambro directed him to open Jure's chalet because he had an extra set of keys in there and he didn't want to wreck his own lock. That's when Jure pulled up, but he claimed to also not have his keys, so the locksmith went to work. Things already seemed suspicious to Terry, but it was when the door was finally opened and they were hit with the fumes of gasoline that Eugenot finally took off, forgetting about the money and never looking back. That night, 25 people died within the walls of the Three Chalet compound in an orgy of flames. They consumed sedatives before setting the chalets ablaze and laying down for their forever sleep. Timed incendiary devices cover the truth of the timeline, although it's likely that most of these members went willingly into the flames. One chalet contained 15 bodies, the next two, and the last eight, each including the chalet's owner. Luke Jurey and Joseph DeMombro were dead. At the same time, about 50 miles north outside the village of Chiray, another 23 died in the orchestrated murder-suicide, although many here went much less willingly. The OST intended for the buildings on the properties in Savon and Chiray to burn and to take the evidence with them to Sirius. Unfortunately, the devices meant to facilitate this were nothing more than shoddy gasoline bag bombs meant to explode remotely by tampered with telephones. While they worked perfectly in Salvan, nearly completely burning the three-structure compound, they proved mostly defective in Charay, leaving much of it to be explored when the fire crew arrived in the early hours of October 4th. First, they found the property owner shot in his home with the symbolic plastic bag over his head, marking him as a traitor. Then, in the farmhouse, the firefighters discovered something curious. A false wall led to a hidden basement ceremony room. The room completely red, floor to ceiling. It was dressed with chrome accents, and the walls bore just one painting, 
of Luke Jurey. There on the ground in the otherwise empty room lay shell casings, empty champagne bottles, and 19 bodies in full ceremonial robes and capes laid out in a perfect circle star pattern, all bodies pointing towards the center of the sunburst. Ten of these bodies had the plastic bag of the traitor pulled over their heads. The 23 bodies in this location were littered with bullets, 65 to be exact. It is assumed that they were given laced champagne and shot repeatedly once they were unconscious. Because the gun that was used needed to be reloaded after every shot, it was estimated that to acquire a target, fire, reload, and repeat 65 times would have taken nearly an hour. The firefighters carried on with their search and they found a second false wall leading to the temple's ritual room. Its walls were completely mirrored and it contained but a single adorned altar and three bodies on the ground around it. Law enforcement in Switzerland and Canada seemed to foul up the investigation simultaneously by not sealing the crime scenes properly or collecting all the evidence before anyone wanted to pick through the wreckage. They seemed to bury the incidents of October 4th as a mass suicide as quickly as they could. 14 months later, on the night of December 5th, 1995, 16 OST members, including three children, died in a mass murder-suicide on a plateau in the woods in a forested area in Vercors, France. The 16 bodies were found charred in the sunburst formation around an exhausted campfire. The victims were found to have sedatives in their bodies, and the investigation showed that two members, a French police officer and an architect, were in charge of shooting the others. They used 22 caliber rifles and a 9mm pistol. They soaked themselves and the 14 bodies in accelerant and set them on fire before taking the two remaining spots in the 16-spoke wheel. They then shot themselves in the mouth so that their bodies fell back, completing their magical formation. The third and final solar temple transit took place in Canada in St. Casimir, Quebec. Here, two families totaling eight OST members met, including three teens, two sets of parents, and one grandmother. The plan was for all eight of them to go, and the teenagers realized it when they woke up and found the house littered with improvised incendiary devices on the second day of their trip. When their parents explained it was time to join the others in the transit, the kids knew they had to think quickly if they wanted to live. They said they were ready for transit, but they wanted to do it by overdosing on sleeping pills in the workshop instead. After spending all day begging, the parents finally granted it. So the teens went out to the workshop and waited out the night with no intentions on killing themselves. When they woke the next day to find the house standing, they entered to discover all five adults in the house were dead. The four parents lay upstairs with their bodies in the shape of a cross, and the grandma was dead on the couch with a plastic bag pulled over her head.
the Order of the Solar Temple, and the tragedies that went with it. As far as cults go, have been largely overshadowed by groups like Heaven's Gate, the People's Temple, and the Branch Davidians. I think this is due to several factors. The events were spread out over five crime scenes in three different countries, so the information is very fragmented. They also take place over the course of a two and a half year period between October 1994 and March 1997, so the impact of the crimes were incremental instead of immediate like in Waco, Jonestown, and the Hollywood home of Heaven's Gate. Last, the siege on Waco took place just over a year before the transit and claimed 76 lives in a single day. For months before that the standoff was news, and for months after, the siege was news. On an audio tape found by the Swiss police, Dre can be heard telling DeMombro that Waco beat them to the punch. To which DeMombro responds, we will do something even more spectacular. But, Mr. DeMombro, if the measure of success was 76 bodies like Waco, you fell too short. The Order of the Solar Temple, sadly, is no more. Although they wouldn't make it known even if they were still around. But if they sounded like fun, viewer, don't worry. There is a sequel to The Order of the Solar Temple, and it's playing right now. They have the same target audience, seeking out the upper class, the rich, the famous. They promote self-improvement, and they use the same tiered system of doctrine distribution, saving the craziest shit for last, just like the OST, waiting till they're at the top and it's too late. They pair couples, they blackmail members into staying, and the whole thing is fiction turned to scripture, just like the original. Best part though, is that the series hasn't wrapped yet, so we will all get to see that fiery finale together. Thank you for sticking around and watching this long. Let me know if you like these long videos or if you like the shorter ones. I'm trying to figure it out myself. If you're trying to blast off the series, don't forget to subscribe. This is Manic and I'm out. See you next time.